thankful for him, his friendship, his ministry. He has, um, he has been uh, with us all 10 years and uh, just uh, thankful for that um, and uh, look forward to hearing what the Lord has for us this morning. Before he comes and, um, and brings the word, uh, Brother Luke Poe, would you come and pray for us? Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful again for the opportunity to be in your house among your people. Lord, we're, we're here um, ready to receive what you have for us. Lord, may, you, may your words come to us in power and may our hearts be open to receive it. Lord, may also the meditation of our heart uh, be pleasing in your sight the things that we're able to think about this morning and also um, as we continue on with our lives, help us to meditate upon these things to your glory and your honor, um, not to uh, rack up a bunch of knowledge, uh, but to apply that knowledge into wisdom. I thank you again for the, the speakers and the preachers who have taken their time to study the Word of God to bring it to us uh, Lord, just bless them to have utterance and uh, have the, the uh, blessing and the gift of their calling, um, that it might be effectual, um, not that they have flowery words uh, enough to, to reach our hearts, but that, that your Holy Spirit might be with us and interpret it for us and just help us to gain more and more understanding of who you are and how worthy you are of worship. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead, Brother Mike. Got some water. Good morning, brothers. Glad to be here with you again. I didn't realize I had been here 10 years, but I've enjoyed uh, every uh, meeting that we've experienced together. Uh, my portion of Psalm 119 is going to be verses 161 through 168, which I'll read now. Psalm 119, 161 through 168. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I have, long, I have hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies for all my ways are before thee. So my subject is finding strength in, and wisdom in deep relational strife or conflict. Relational, how two or more people connect. Strife, a clash, a disagreement, an argument, divided interest, tension, Deep, I had to think about that one, 
difficult, emotional, distressing, and often lingering. Could be complex, deep, but often it lingers. Sometimes we get caught in a cycle of conflict, the misunderstanding, the strife continues in a cycle. So you'll notice that the relational conflict that the psalmist is having is with princes, rulers, and kings. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart standeth in awe of thy word. So I'm going to guess, just a guess, nobody here is having a personal relational conflict with a king. You can correct me after I'm finished if that's not true. We have a lot of conflict in our hearts about things that are happening in our culture because of rulers and princes and politicians. But I'm going to guess nobody here personally is having one-on-one conflict with a king or a ruler or a prince. So I want to bring this down closer to home where we all experience conflict. It's with your wife. It's with your children. It's with your mother or your father. It's with your brother or sister. It's with the church members that we often experience some level of relational strife. It's with your pastors. It's your pastors with you. And it's those deacons sometimes you have relational strife with. So in all these relationships closer to home, we're going to see what the psalmist is saying in this somehow relationship with princes where he... There was no cause as to why the prince was or princes were persecuting him. But I'm going to guess with us, there's often a cause and that cause is often on our behalf and something that relates to us. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but we're not going to talk about details of working out conflict. The psalmist never speaks a word about the princes after that first verse. We're going to talk about your role in the conflict and what kind of heart you have, and what kind of person you are that approaches the conflict, no matter what the details are. And there's always details to be worked out. That is, at this point, irrelevant. It's your heart and your approach to the conflict that's going to make the difference in what kind of person you are than when you have to communicate and speak and resolve issues of conflict. Years ago, I used to ask Elder Bradley all the time, because he had a lot of experience in helping people in conflict, I try to build a scenario, hypothetical, and ask him what he would do. And in, in ver- every time he would say at some point, well, I'd have to have the details. There's no way I can speak to that without the details. So I, I don't know the details if you're experiencing relational strife right now. I, I have no clue the details, but it's irrelevant to what this psalm is saying because there's a certain kind of heart, a certain kind of approach to whatever your relational conflict is, it's going to help you endure it and work through it to the honor and glory of God. So we can't comment on every verse, but there are four things that you need in conflict out of this stanza. First, you need to stand in awe. Second, you need to hate lying. Third, you need peace. And fourth, you need to keep all your ways before God. Number one, notice the contrast. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but here's his reaction to this conflict he's having, which appears to be one-sided in his case, but my heart is standing in awe 
of thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. Stand in awe. Well, the word awe has a, has a, a mixture of emotions in it. The first thing you'll find with this word awe, to be awestruck, to, to stand in awe, is fear and dread. But commingled with awe is the feeling of admiration, impressiveness. When you're awestruck or when you think something is awesome, which that's a very overused word, you know, your, your, your lunch was not that awesome. <laughs> but when something is really awesome and you're struck with awe, when you look at it, an event or a person, you're filled with wonder and admiration, like looking at the Grand Canyon. Never been there. Seen pictures. Imagine standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You're filled with awe and wonder at the beauty and the majesty. It's breathtaking. All right, let's take an example of how we can bring these two emotions together in two people in the Bible, and there were two kings. First, King Nebuchadnezzar. Suppose you're a Jew that survived the destruction of Jerusalem and you made your way on the long journey to Babylon and you're a captive there. And somebody knocks on your door and it's a soldiers. And they say, King Nebuchadnezzar wants to see you at his throne. Tell me your emotion as a Jew. There's no wonder. There's no admiration. You are stricken with fear and dread. You are quaking in your boots because you know he has the power to take your head off of your shoulders. And perhaps you think that's what's going to happen. That's all. That's the word here. There's, there's terror and there's dread. Now take King Solomon in 1 Kings 10.1. The queen of Sheba was struck with awe at his wisdom, his glory, and all that she saw. She proved him with hard questions. She heard of his fame and his glory. She traveled a great distance with an entourage. And when she arrived, she asked him hard questions and he revealed all the answers to her. And when she saw his glory, the house that he had built, the servants, the food on the table, everybody was happy. And when she saw the ascent that led up to the house of the Lord, she said there was no more spirit in her. Translated, it took her breath away. She was filled with awe. Now, how do we bring these two emotions together? One of fear and dread and one of awe and wonder. When you look at God and when you see his power and his fury and his wrath, which is terrible and makes us quake and tremble. But then you see his grace and his mercy and you wonder and you're struck at all at that. There's only one place you can find where those two emotions come together. It's when you can look at that and be safe. When you could look at his terror and his wrath and be safe And that can only be done in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, we can look at the wonder and the beauty of the cross and the wonder of God's grace and His glory and all that He is and look at His wrath and tremble at it and at the same time be filled with wonder because we're looking at it safely in Christ Jesus the Lord. So you can't begin to handle conflict with strength and wisdom unless you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, unless you have come to Christ and seen the cross as something of the place where your sins have been placed on Jesus Christ and God's wrath that we see throughout the Bible, that wrath satisfied totally, completely, and forever. So we can be filled with wonder, we can shake and tremble with rejoicing when we look 
at the word while we're looking at God in Christ. Now, the experience of all, the psalmist gives us in the next verse. Although there's some fear and dread that he has when he looks at God through the word, which is a revelation of God, he says, I rejoice at thy word. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. So the experience of awe, even when we're trembling at things we read in the Bible, it's an experience of trembling with joy. We rejoice at who Christ is for us, and we rejoice in God by means of the word. Now, what happens when you lose awe? And we're going to relate this to the conflict in a minute. What happens when you lose the experience of awe? You lose joy in God and His Word. Now think of the implications when it comes to princes, the relationship that the psalmist is talking about. A prince, a ruler, had the authority to take away valuable things from the psalmist with no questions asked. Take away his money, take away his house, take away his possessions, take away his bank account, take away his retirement, take away everything, take away his life. If the psalmist's ultimate joy, his awe was in created things, then he capitulates when it comes to persecution. See, the point is when we lose our experience of awe in God by means of the Word, our joy shifts from God to created things. See, if you find something awesome and it's safe and it's attainable, you're going to seek it because it gives you joy. When you think that performer is awesome, you're going to seek the ticket to go to the concert. When you think that athlete is awesome, you're going to go to the game. You're going to get the posters. You're going to buy the memorabilia so he can increase his NIL earnings. (laughs) Whatever you think is awesome, even old men, if you don't use that word, you get the point. Whatever fills you with joy, you seek it, And so when our awe shifts from God to something horizontal created, what does that mean about your relationships? Now you're looking to relationships as the ultimate source of that joy. That's why you got married, right? You expected that young lady to be the source of your joy. Now, if that is where you're expecting joy to come, ultimately... What happens when you have relational conflict? Manipulation, control, words, strife. Because your heart has lost the experience of awe in God, which is an experience of joy that you're seeking, and it shifted to something horizontal, which is going to include those close relationships like your children and your family and your wife and your church, Then what happens when there's conflict, your heart is approaching the conflict in a way that you're expecting that relationship to serve you in a way that gives you joy. Now you're not in a position to respond rightly in the conflict. Everything now has been turned towards oneself to serve oneself to give them that sense of fulfillment, that contentment, that joy. Now, our relationships can bring contentment only when Christ is at the center and when Christ is the one we're seeking for joy. Notice the illustration or image here. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. 
Say, why is it that we so often lose joy in God? Well, if you find something, particularly in a battlefield, which spoils happened after the war is fought, you're seeking it. How many of you are actually seeking to find joy in God? Now, if I'm interpreting the image right here, I rejoice in the Word because that's where I find the God who my heart stands in awe of. I'm rejoicing like one, here's a simile, like one who finds because he's seeking the spoils of victory in battle. So, strange enough, he's looking for dead bodies to pull the gold teeth out and the gold coins out of the pocket and take the clothes off the body. He's seeking, he's looking for the spoils and the victory of war. Are you doing that in your search in Scripture? Now, here's where we can run into a problem in our conflict. If God is not the ultimate source of the joy that I'm seeking and things horizontally become that joy, like my marriage, like my church, like the relationships that I'm in, now my approach to the Bible is significantly changed. Now I'm looking at the Bible like an encyclopedia. Most of you young guys probably don't remember what that is because you got it on your phone. It was a large set of books On the spine of each book, you had a letter, and you knew if you needed information, you needed to do research, you would go to that letter, open the book, and get what you needed. So in conflict, what do you need? You go to the letter C for conflict. You go to the letter F for fix. Or you go to the letter S for solve. And then you go to the passages which will solve the problem, and you bring those passages to the problem, which is usually the person that you're trying to fix. And now you're applying Scripture to the wrong person. And you've missed your own heart because you want the relationship to be restored to a place of joy. And the way you're going to do that is use the Bible to fix her, to fix the person in the relationship instead of asking questions that relate to your own heart. It's the first time I've brought an actual little illustration. It's called the Bible graph. Now, I kind of like it. It's really neat. What you do is you spin it like the wheel of fortune and you find the problem. It says, my marriage is in trouble. Now, I didn't make that up. It's right right there. And you spin the arrow to the day of the week and there's a window that gives you book, chapter, and verse. Now, what's wrong with that? Nothing. Unless your whole aim is to take the verse and fix the person in which you're having conflict with. Now, how many times is that our experience? We just want to fix this. We just want to get this problem right when God is saying, I want you to look at your own heart. Because every relational problem we have horizontally, everyone is an issue of worship and an issue of relationship with God. And so when I'm approaching the conflict... Realizing something about my own heart, looking at something about my own ways, I'm coming with a different attitude other than just going to the verse, getting the Bible and say, here's the problem, fix it. Now think about James chapter 1, verse 5. If this message is about finding wisdom, James is the book to go to. He even says, if any man like wisdom, let him ask of God that give it to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it will be given him. So you go to the Bible, that's the source of wisdom, and I'm looking for wisdom in conflict. 
And so the trials in verse 2 can be, in this context, the trial of conflict. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into deep relational conflict. That fits. So in that conflict, you need wisdom. And so you ask God for wisdom. Well, then you get your Bible graph out and you start spinning. And you get book, chapter, and verse. But God says this about this wisdom. He said, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and toss. Let not that man in deep relational conflict think he shall receive anything of the Lord. The first thing to note is the double-minded man is the man asking for wisdom. He's genuinely asking, but there's something wrong with the heart of what he's asking for. Because James 4 tells us what? You, You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss to consume it upon your own lust. You're after your own joy in this conflict. So you go to the Bible... And you get your Bible graph and you get the verse and you're bringing it to the person you're having conflict with to fix the person. Because you want to get the answer from God that will bring back what you're trying to get for your own desires. So to ask in faith is to ask for the glory of God, for the honor of God. So the double-minded man asks, but he doesn't ask in faith. He's asking for a personal Reason, which is a restoration of joy in the relationship, which based on the relationship itself, not God. Now, he's double-minded also because he's willing to use the wisdom of God, the Bible graph, or go to the Bible, if he gets the wisdom he's after. If it'll fix the problem. If not, he has a backup plan. Have you ever met somebody like that? Maybe you tried to help them. They came to you. You told them what the problem was, but you told them the problem was not with the other person, it was with them. And they didn't like what you said. So they went to another person. And they went to another person. Like a person that goes to a doctor. But they've already written out their own prescription. So they go to the doctor and say, I'm sick, here's the problem. The doctor says, it's your diet that's the problem. Thank you very much. He goes to the next doctor. He goes to the next doctor. What's the problem? He's trying to get the fix that he wants with his own personal prescription. Beloved, if we've lost our experience of awe in God and His Word, we begin to use that Word for the purpose of fixing problems that we are perceiving in other people rather than asking the question, what is my heart relationship with God and why am I saying, why am I doing the things I'm doing? Because James says, whenever you have wars and fightings among you, it comes from your own lust. Not her, not him, not the other person. What's coming out of our mouths is because of our own desires. And so the first thing that the psalmist wants to make sure about his own heart in relation to being persecuted, he says, I... Stand in awe, my heart standeth in awe of thy word, and I rejoice in thy word as much as in all spoil. Now his heart is prepared to respond and to react to authorities in a way that honors God because his ultimate joy is not in himself. It's not in what the authorities can take away. 
It's not in his home. It's not in his relationships. It's in his God. And therefore, his mouth can respond in a tense situation in ways that honor God because he's awestruck with God. And his ultimate joy is not in his relationship. It's not in his marriage. It's not in a president that we like. It's ultimately in God. So ask yourself, before you get to the table of conflict, before you need to discuss all the details that are genuine and real in the conflict, where is my heart with God? Number two, verse 163, I hate and abhor lying, but thy law do I love. Seven times a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments. I hate and abhor lying. Lying is falsehood or deception. This word is used by Job in Job 13.4 when he said, concerning his miserable comforters, but you are forgers of lies, physicians of no value. The word forgers means plaster. That's that building material you put on ceilings and walls, and you, you cover over the wall. So he said about his miserable comforters, you're plastering me with falsehood, and they were misrepresenting Job's character because of a misunderstanding of God's providence suggesting that the reason you are suffering so bad is you've done some terrible things because only wicked people suffer like you're suffering. So they're plastering Job with falsehood. Now here's the issue. You need to hate your own lying. How many times have you and I, even unintentionally, plastered people in conflict with falsehood? It is so easy to forget the details. And in memory loss, sometimes we remember the wrong thing and we're willing to act and speak on that thing because we don't hate lying in such a way that I don't want to say anything or do anything that misrepresents the person I'm in conflict with and suggesting things that would shift the responsibility away from myself to the other person. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but he that confesseth and forsaketh shall have mercy. When you hate your own lying, you're coming to the conflict table with a spirit of confession. You want to be open and honest and confess. I was talking to two men years ago separately who were having conflict together with one another. The first man came. He's very cool, calm, and collected. He told me the problem and said what he had thought the other brother was doing wrong. So I listened. Of course, there's always another side. So the other brother came to me. The first thing's out of his mouth. The first words, he said, I have done some wrong things. Now, which spirit do you think is ready to honor God in the conflict? The other brother had done some wrong things, but he never would confess it. He was covering. You see, beloved, we have a tendency to cover our sins in conflict and we don't have the spirit of confession. And that's why we find cyclical conflict. Because without confession, there's no forsaking. Without forsaking, there's no mercy. And the point is that we need mercy in order to forsake. And the mercy's only going to come through confession. Why is that? Well, he that is whole needeth not a physician, but he that is sick. Have you ever tried to convince a person that's not sick to go to the doctor? 
Years ago, this person called me and wanted to give me a free adjustment from the chiropractor. I said, no, thank you. She was upset with me. She, we, we talked for 10 minutes. No, it's free. You just come down and get an adjustment. I said, no, thank you. I finally said, I don't need a back adjustment. And now I wish I'd get that call. But <laughs> See, you're not going to get me to the doctor if I'm not sick. If you don't need the mercy of God, you don't have it for forsaking your sin. When you confess your sin and the freedom of confessing to God and to one another in the conflict, you're also confessing your need of mercy. If you're not wrong, you don't need mercy. If you're not sick, you don't need a doctor. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's the cleansing we need, but there's the forgiveness also. How is God just and faithful to forgive you when you confess? Only if the sin you confess has already been forgiven. Now you think about that. God would be unjust if He forgave you for a sin that was not already forgiven. Because what's the basis of atonement? If you're just confessing an unforgiven sin, who atoned for sin? God would not be right. Sometimes we try to atone for sin in our confession. Even there, concealing sin. Lord, forgive me my sin. I'll do better tomorrow. What's the basis of confession? Your self-righteousness. Lord, I, forgive me of my sin. I'll read the Bible more tomorrow. You may not. And so what you're saying is the basis of forgiveness is my right action tomorrow. No, God is only faithful and just to forgive you because your sin has already been atoned for and forgiven forever in Christ. Confession is the assurance that it's been forgiven because you're acknowledging it instead of enjoying it. And so when you confess your sin and you're forgiven, at that moment you're confessing, I need the gospel. Because that's the basis of your forgiveness. Lord, forgive me on the basis of the blood of Christ. Now, Lord, with my confession, I'm confessing. I cannot do this. I need you. And he cleanses by the blood of Christ. It's only through the gospel. So let's think of some ways we cover sin, that we lie to ourselves, and thereby we lie to the person that we're having conflict with, sometimes inadvertently, because sin is so deceptive that we can actually lie in ways that we may not understand. First, we, we conceal by denial. Now, sometimes it's just outright lying. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. And maybe you're thinking, oh, I really did. But sometimes our denial is because she or he didn't restate what you said with the same sentence structure the same subject-verb agreement, the same order with the exact same word. So technically, you didn't say that. But the spirit of what she's charging you with is absolutely true, and you won't confess it. You're getting off because of a technicality. She couldn't remember exactly what you said, so you conceal your sin with denying, and technically, you're right. I didn't use that verb. Now, I'm being a little bit 
ridiculous, but you get the point. If she's getting the point of what you did without getting the exact words, confess it and forsake it and get mercy. Break the cycle of conflict that we so easily get trapped in. Second, we conceal by self-defense. Now, that's my favorite. I mean, I shouldn't say it like that's a good thing, but you know, why do you hire a defense attorney? If you've ever needed a defense attorney, why do you hire that? Self-defense. You, you, you hired the most skilled attorney that money can buy, and what you want him to do is get you off the hook. Now, as a Christian, you should want him to do it honestly, but some people don't care. Just get me off the hook. Get me a, a, a sentence that's less. And so his job is to so take the facts and present them in such a way that his client is seen as right and not wrong. And now in conflict, how many times do we do that? Rather than confess and forsake and receive mercy, we hide, conceal. And the word there in Proverbs also means to clothe oneself. So we begin to defend ourselves with all kinds of words and ways that sometimes if you just think in your heart about what you're saying, you'll catch yourself saying, I'm just defending myself. It's, it's so scary sometimes how quick and how easy we are to defend ourselves instead of just the freedom to say, you're right. I confess, I did that. Will you forgive me? So we conceal our sin by denying it. Sometimes we conceal it by self-defense. We conceal it by a partial confession. You know, like a kid that was caught and there's chocolate all over the mouth. They've been told not to eat the piece of candy or the cookie and said, did, did you eat a cookie? I did. They won't confess. They ate 20 cookies. Do you ever just confess what you were caught doing? That's not confession. There's something in the heart that's protecting and covering oneself, maybe to win the argument, maybe to be the victor. We just need to confess to one another. If you two people are trying to handle conflict and and what they're all about is, is pointing the finger at the other person, you can't help them. It is impossible. Because confession is the spirits that's necessary. Whether it's mainly one or mainly the other, it's immaterial. If both people are approaching the conflict with a spirit of confession, I'm not going to hide this. We're going to confess. I'm even going to confess what she didn't exactly hear me say. Because I want to forsake this sin and I want to receive mercy. We can, we, we protect or we conceal, we hide by minimizing. Now, this is particularly applicable with sisters because they are emotional. And so the way you minimize, you say, well, you're just too sensitive. You're out of control. Well, maybe she is out of control. But you need to ask yourself, why is she out of control? Now, let me hasten to say, if... If your wife or somebody in conflict with is saying words that are sinful, that came out of their own heart. But as a husband, you need to ask yourself, are you driving your wife insane? Because she is more emotional. She's not cool, calm, and collective like I am. My wife often says to me, you know, you look good to the children because you can just keep it all under control. 
your wife is probably going to be a little more emotional than you. And so therefore, you conceal your sin by minimizing it, by pointing out, well, you're just too sensitive. You're out of control. And guess what? Oh, now she's the problem. It's tricky, isn't it? And then we, we also conceal by attacking what she loves. Are you recording this? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Don't let my wife get a copy of this. So I'm just going to say, my wife is a wonderful decorator. She is good at it. People have asked her to do it. She is great. And she can find things pennies on a dollar. Sometimes people come to our house and say, wow, that's wonderful. I'll speak up. Five dollars. <laughs> but guess what I have the audacity to do when we're having conflict over finances? Well, if you wouldn't be decorating and spending all this money on decorating, that is a lie. What am I doing? I'm shifting it. Because I don't want to give up my $3 cup of coffee from the coffee shop. You see the point, beloved, how sin is so tricky. If we don't hate lying our own line, then we inadvertently sometimes, before we know it, we start shading the truth, partial truth, embellishing the truth, and then lastly we conceal by shifting blame. And that's probably the most common, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3. Adam, where are you? I hid from you because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded thee not to eat? Now what is God after? A confession. He's after a confession. Listen to Adam's confession. It was a confession. He, did, he said, yeah, I ate it. But... He said two things that were absolutely true. It's the woman you gave me, true. She gave me the fruit to eat, true. Absolutely true. But he's lying. Third truth, actually, I did eat it. But he, he's lying. Why? He's shifting the blame to God and his wife. No. Men in the psychologist world today call that gaslighting. When you get people to question their reality. Now, you're not going to make God question reality. But it's like, God, do you, do you see what's going on here? Have you, have you lost sight of reality? You gave me the woman. She gave me the fruit. And I ate it. All true. But you're guilty. Because you're lying to yourself, Adam. And of course, Eve lies also. It was the serpent that beguiled me. Now that's true. Absolutely true. Paul confirms that in the New Testament. But it's a lie. Because she will not confess. And guess what? At that moment, Adam and Eve do not receive mercy. They're cast out of the garden. Now what kind of husband and wife is that going to be at the table of conflict? Yeah, I said that. But it's because you said that. Yeah, I did that. But it's because you did that. Now, I know I'm not the only one that's had those conversations in this room. What is going on here? I'm not confessing because I haven't gotten to the place where I really hate my own lying, my own deception, my own falsehood. And so, brothers, stand in awe of God. Seek God as the ultimate source of your joy. 
as one that seeks and finds great spoil, and hate and abhor lying. It means we've got to approach the conflict with a spirit of confession, saying, I'm ready to confess whatever I need to confess. Now, if both parties are doing that, how is that going to transform the conflict? Yes, there's details to work through, but the battle is already won to some degree because now I'm confessing and forsaking and the cycle now is being broken because the confession and the forsaking is leading me to transformation. And now I'm becoming a transformed person. Yes, I'm still a sinner. I'm not bringing perfection to the table. I'm not bringing sinlessness. There are still things I'm going to have to deal with, but I'm bringing truth about myself. Now, what is the truth? Oh, how I love thy law. I hate lying. I love your law. And then he says, seven times in a day do I praise thee because of thy righteous judgments, which is worship. So the heart that's worshiping God through the word is now bringing that heart of worship to the conflict table, even though there's been sin, and says, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. Like the prodigal. What a freeing thing to do. Number three. Verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Lord, I've hoped for thy salvation and done thy commandments. Nothing shall offend them. To offend means to fall or to stumble. To fall away from God, but then relative to the point, to fall out of the relationship. When you bring great peace to the conflict, you will endure the difficult relationship. When you don't have this peace, the threat is you're going to sever the covenantal relationship like marriage or in the non-covenantal relationships. Sometimes relationships can be severed that honor God, based on the word, and you still love one another, but there, there's kind of a parting of ways. But the point here is that when he has this great peace, he's not falling away from God, and therefore, relationally, he's still pursuing the relationship even when there's deep relational conflict. Now, I'm not suggesting when these things are intact, there's no conflict. The point is, how are we approaching the conflicts? Let's talk about peace. Peace here, shalom. Shalom, peace in the Old Testament is well-being, welfare, even prosperity. Ultimately, shalom, peace is when everything is exactly as it's supposed to be in the universe. When Jesus reconciles all things to himself and sums up everything in himself, one day we will experience total shalom, peace. Everything will be exactly right. Until that time, we will have conflict. But we can have and should bring peace in our hearts to the conflict table. When we bring that peace, we're bringing a sense of rest and well-being in our hearts, as Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word that we're talking about in Psalm 119. Let it dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's the wisdom we need for conflict teaching and admonishing one another. There's going to need to be some admonition at the table of conflict. So Paul says, first, you need peace to get there. You need to bring peace to the conflict. It's inner peace. It's well-being inside of us, not outside of us, because there's, there's conflict. Jesus said, in this world, you, ha- you shall have tribulation. Uh, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. He, he came to give us the peace that passes understanding, and this peace is not in circumstances. 
It's John 14. He said, the peace I give you is not as the world giveth peace. How does the world give you peace? Only when circumstances outside of you are all good, then you can have peace. If they're not, there's no peace. But the peace Jesus gives is not dependent on what's happening outside of you. If you're in conflict, it's dependent on what's happening inside of you and who He is for you. So let the peace of God rule. Let it be like an umpire is the word there in your heart. So it's inner peace. It's inner well-being. It's, it's kind of a shalom peace <clears throat> where there's a certain kind of welfare or well-being inside of you. Now, there are two ways this peace can rule. First of all, when you understand Christ is ruling over the conflict. You are not there by accident. He is ruling over all things on behalf of the church, Ephesians 1.22. He is ruling over every detail of your life for your sanctification. That means in His design, the conflict is going to serve a purpose of transformation. Yes, in the other person, but we're thinking primarily about us this morning. So if we go into the conflict with an inner rest, even though outside of us there's turmoil, there, there's, there's clashing going on inside, I'm at rest knowing Jesus has me here. So I can learn something about myself and be transformed. And maybe as an instrument for the person I'm in conflict with. So when two people are coming with that peace, they're understanding I can rest in Jesus' rule over this situation and there's something He's going to do good through it for my growth. Secondly, your peace and inner rest, your well-being is attached to who you are in Christ. So and he covers that in the previous part of the chapter. He said, it, and it put on the new man, which is after God, is, is renewed in knowledge, created after God in righteousness. Well, I'm going to read that one. Colossians 3. Verse 10, and I put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. All right, so this, this peace that's ruling in your heart is because you are attached to Christ by faith. You're in Christ. And so you're not getting your sense of peace your well-being, your significance from who you are in the relationship, but who you are in Christ. So who are you in Christ? You are chosen by God. You are holy positionally. You are as holy and righteous as you will ever be positionally because it's been imputed to you by faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot get one iota more right before God positionally. You can't be less right before God than you are right now by faith because your righteousness is of Him. That's something to rest in, isn't it? You are beloved of God. You are the object of His affection, believe it or not. He loves you in such a way, if I'm not being irrelevant or irreverent, He is giddy in a way over His love for you, not your love for Him. Jesus in John 17 wants you to be with Him so you can see him, His glory and experience the love that God has had for Him before the foundation of the world. 
Rest in the fact that you can't act in such a way to be more loved of God. You can't sin in such a way to be less loved of God. He loves you with an everlasting love. Now in that rest, in that peace, bring that to the conflict table. Now here's the opposite. When you're finding your inner sense of peace and rest and significance from your identity as it relates to the relationship, now we're in trouble. Let's take, for example, preaching. If my identity, if what I really find significance in is being a good preacher, I'm in trouble and conflict. Now, I never met a preacher that said, my goal is to be a bad preacher. I just want to be the worst I can be. (laughs) But when good preaching becomes your identity, and one of the members approaches you and wants to tell you how recently you've been a bad preacher, maybe in a valid way, What's your response? You don't receive it. Because your identity, your peace is wrapped up in being a good preacher. I had a man say to me one time years ago, I don't get anything out of your preaching. How do you respond? Yes, you do. I mean, you know. <laughs> I am a good preacher. You know, what do you say? You're right. I don't know. Tell me more. <laughs> so. how I view myself in that moment is going to largely impact how I receive what he's saying. Now, Elder Bradley helped me years ago. He said, listen, in preaching, you're never as good as they say, and you're never as bad as they say. (laughs) That was pretty good counsel. But, but, but maybe he had some valid points. And, and I listened because there were some things I learned. But if, I, if my identity is being a good preacher, I cannot receive correction. If your identity is being a good husband and your wife wants to tell you how you've been a bad husband, you're in trouble. Because you're going to deny it. You're going to cover it. You're going to tell her how she's the problem. You're going to, in effect, say, I am a good husband. Because your sense of identity, if, you, if your identity is being a good father... And your children don't make you look like a good father, which happens just pretty often. You're going to come down hard on your children. Why? Because your peace and your significance and your well-meaning and your shalom is wrapped up in this relationship. So what happens when you bring this peace, this spirit of confession, this great peace that the psalmist is talking about, now you're ready to hear the church member that says, I'm having this problem, and it's with you. Or your wife is saying, you've you've been a lazy husband. Or even your older children said, Dad, there's some things I want to talk to you about. There's some things you've been saying that's been really hurtful. No, I'm not. Okay, I'm ready to hear because my peace is not ultimately in this relationship. It's not in who I am there. It's in Christ alone. It's in Christ. Now, I'm not trying to act as if that's an easy thing to uh, have, but it's, it's something we must strive toward. Now, if you have this ruling peace, as you go to the table of conflict, now the Word of Christ is dwelling in you richly. Now what happens? There's teaching and admonishing. And the people involved in the conflict are receiving the admonition. Of course, that's a, that's a church text, isn't it? it, it it's church relationships. We are called on to disciple one another, and that means we're going to be instructing one another, and we're going to be admonishing, which means to encourage, to correct, and to warn. Now, if everybody is getting their identity in who they are, nobody's receiving instruction. 
And we're all covering over sins that we need to forsake because our, our peace, our, our significance is found in being a good church member. And you're telling me that I'm, I'm not uh, at the moment. And so David says, great peace have I in thy word, how he loves the word. And then the result is he doesn't quickly walk away from his relationships. See, if you keep having this cyclical conflict and your identities in yourselves, like I've had it, I'm leaving this person. I'm leaving this church. I'm leaving that pastor. And you won't endure it. Why? Because you don't have great peace that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly is keep all your ways before Him. And this is just the last part of the verse. Verse 168. 167. My soul hath kept thy testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I have kept thy precepts and thy testimonies because all my ways are before you. All my ways. A way is, is a pathway, journey, a direction, life. So his pathway is before God. The, the, the word before has the sense of being uh, open before God, but God knowing it. God knowing it. How does that help? So I know God knows my way. I know He knows my pathway. How does that help me in conflict? See, when you understand that the phrase means He's knowing it in a specific way. Job says in Job 23, uh, 10, I think it is, but He hath known my pathway. Why does that help Job in his conflict with his wife that he had and the great challenges he's experiencing? When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In other words, this is how God is knowing my way. He is testing my way. He is giving saving attention to your way. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You ever thought about what that means? Well, I know He knows the way of the righteous. The reason you will arrive in glory and you will stand in the congregation of the righteous is because God is knowing your way. It's because Christ's perfect righteousness has been imputed to you by faith. It's because your salvation then is predicated upon faith. Therefore, you have to arrive in glory by faith. God is giving saving attention to your faith by testing it and shaping it and molding it. And He's going to keep you by His power through faith. When you come to the table of conflict, remember, God is taking special care of you. And He's going to use the conflict to test your faith. So you can see things about your faith that needs to change. And you can see more about the God that you love in the conflict. Because what are the brothers pointed out about this? The law is a revelation of God's glory. And the law is a mirror to reveal something about myself. So when I see God more clearly and see myself more clearly, whatever way God is doing that, He is knowing your way by giving saving attention to you, even in the conflict. So brothers, stand in awe of God and His Word. Hate your own lying. Take peace with you in the conflict. And remember, 
All your ways are known and being cared for by the God that loves you. Amen.